announcement, I do want to talk a little bit about our upcoming Ignite conference. If we could get that slide up on the screen, that would be great. All right, here is our Ignite conference that's coming up. We're doing it a little bit different this year. We're doing it a little bit differently this year. Um, rather than three consecutive days, we're going to do three consecutive Saturdays, okay? So if you are not familiar with what Ignite it is, is, it is our discipleship conference. So if you are newer to BTM, we really strongly invite you to join us for this. It's a teaching discipleship conference. We go really in-depth into a lot of stuff. We make changes almost every single time. Um, this time... Um, we changed quite a bit of our mission and vision segment. Um, you'll notice on the first day, which is February 2nd, we're doing our mission, our vision. We're going to do um, a, a segment on the transition from high school into college, and we're going to do prophetic training, how to hear the Lord, this very practical um, session. So that's for the first day. Second day, we're going to do essential Christian practices, and then we have three sessions on inner healing and deliverance, okay? There's a lot on inner healing and deliverance, okay? So you're welcome to to come out for that day. And the third one, we're going to talk about the seven mountains, which is affecting culture, discipling culture. We're going to talk about um, finances and resume building. So if you do not have a resume, you will build one at this workshop, okay? And if you have one, you will make it excellent at this workshop, amen? Right? And then we have a politics series and the all-important dating series, okay? Okay, to answer all of your questions about dating and marriage, engagement, all of that stuff. Okay, so please mark your calendars and sign up um, at the welcoming table. If you're going to attend all three days, we want to remind those of you who are in leadership or serving in other staff departments, if there is um, a day of Ignite that you have not successfully completed the test on, you need to take, you need to make up that day. You don't have to come to all three days, okay? But the portion of the test that you that you failed on, if you failed day three, then you need to come to day three and retake the test, okay? Sound good? Amen. All right. Open up your Bibles today. We're going to get into Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, okay? And we have been, um, we actually just finished 21 days of morning prayer, um, and it was so awesome. The last week was glorious. There were about three of us there, <laughs> which is kind of what always happens, you know, every year, which I understand. Um, but I want to share um, a little bit of some of the stuff that I, God has really been putting on my heart in particular. I have really been gripped with this idea of inheritance, especially for us. Now, I want to speak a little bit as a Korean American. I understand that not all of us are Korean Americans. I'm only half Korean American. And if you're not, well, join us because you get to be a part of this inheritance too, okay? Because this is for our entire community. If you know anything about the Korean church, in 1907, there was a great revival in Pyongyang, which is the capital of what's now North Korea. And this was around the same time as a great revival that broke out right here in Southern California. We call it the Azusa Street Revival, which happened around the same time that a series of revivals broke out in India, which happened about the same time as a revival broke out in England, and we call it the Welsh Revival. All of these revivals were happening at the same time. It was a major outpouring of the Spirit. Out of that 1907 revival in Pyongyang, what happened was there were all of these Koreans, okay, this was in Korea, and they just start to repent. A great conviction just started to come upon them. They started to repent, and this it, it was like they 
all started praying at the same time. It was something that was weird. They hadn't really seen that before. But they all started to shout at the top of their lungs, praying and repenting. And the ministers um, who were helping to lead, they had never seen anything like this before. But this became a mark of Korean prayer. Where Koreans, if you've uh, you know, ever seen Koreans pray, they pray differently. By the way, if you, um, you know, did not grow up in the Korean church, I understand where you're coming from, too. I uh, always tell a funny story of how I went to InterVarsity Christian Fellowship when I was in, um, you know, a freshman in Berkeley. And guess what? They're not a Korean type of Christian group, right? And they had a prayer meeting and um, said, okay, we're going to pray together. Let's pray. And I just start praying like I know how to pray. And I'm praying loud, and I just figure, man, maybe these guys are all just kind of, you know, timid or something. But I'm just praying and praying and praying. I'm going for like, you know, at least 10 minutes just by myself, right? And um, there's this entire group of like 30 people, and these were all the leaders. I had come to a leadership thing, right? All leaders in varsity. I was a brand new freshman. And, um, you know, I just prayed for 10 minutes, and then I, I finished, and then the leader was like, Amen. Right? I, I had used up the entire allotted time for prayer. I thought everyone was going to pray at the same time, but I was not used to being in a community where they took turns praying. That's what they were expecting, right? But I used the whole time. Amen. That's because I grew up in a Korean church, okay? And in the Korean church, that's how we pray. We all pray together. You know, uh, you kinda, we kind of joke about it, but, you know, the way you pray Korean style is you pray as fast as you can, Right? And the way you do it, you say a lot of like, you know, Jesus, God, Lord, thank you, Lord, Father. We thank you, Jesus, God, Lord, for everything. Jesus, God, Lord, you've done. Jesus, God, Lord. <laughs> um, I don't pray exactly the same way anymore, but the same heart is there. And so I want you to understand your roots. Now, that revival in the Korean church, what it started, it started this devotion to morning prayer. And this is a hallmark of Korean churches everywhere. Our church does this, believe it or not, every single day at like 5, 5.30 in the morning, our grandmas gather together and pray, okay? It's mostly the, old, the, the, the older, older generation, right? They're there every single morning praying because this is a hallmark of Korean church. This is what you do. My mom did this um, when I was young. She, every single day she'd leave the house at like 4.30 in the morning, and she'd go and she'd pray. And then she'd come back, and I was still sleeping, right? Um, but sometimes she would wake me up at the garage door. I'd be like, Mom, keep the garage door. It's too loud. You're waking me up, right? She's out there praying for me, right? And I'm complaining that she's being too loud, right? This is, this is the inheritance of the Korean church. Now, that heart for prayer, that priority, that devotion to prayer is the engine of all of the power in the Korean church, the Korean church has sent out more missionaries per capita than any other people group in this past generation. Okay, Because what you always see is that where there's a strong value for prayer, there's a strong value for missions. If you know anything of the Protestant missions movement, it started in Germany in a little town called Hernhut where they decided to have a hundred year prayer meeting. You can visit it today. They have the room where the monks, they, they went in rotation two by two. They wore grooves in the stone. If you look, you can see the grooves where they laid there praying. They had a 100-year a, a prayer meeting. It didn't end for 100 years. They kept it going round the clock for 100 years, right? And out of that community launched the modern um, Protestant missions movement. Okay, That's where missions largely came from um, in the Protestant church. 
What you see is prayer always precedes missions. Why? Well, we're going to talk a little bit about that today, but I want you to understand I have been gripped with this sense that we as the younger generation must seize the inheritance that is being offered to us. I'm speaking prophetically right now. The danger is that if we go as we are going, as a second-generation Korean-American church and community where we do not value prayer to the degree that our forefathers did, we will not have the same spiritual efficacy, the same power, the same anointing, and the same fruitfulness that they did. And what I'm gripped by is the figure of Esau. If you know the story of Esau, Esau was the brother um, of Jacob. And they both had a great inheritance from their father Isaac. Their father Isaac had a blessing that was passed down from his father Abraham. And as the firstborn son, it was Esau's. He had it. But his younger brother wanted it. And he wanted it more than Esau did. If you know the story, he tricked him, right? He waited till he was really hungry one day. And he prepared his favorite stew. He said, if you trade me your birthright inheritance, you can have this bowl of stew. And Esau made the deal. He's like, fine, I'll give you, I'll give you my inheritance, right? You give me the bowl of stew. And this is something that is condemned in Scripture. It actually says that Esau despised his birthright. He despised his birthright. And by that, it doesn't mean that Esau was like, gosh, oh, that birthright, so gross. Oh, I hate that stupid thing. Right? That's not the sense in which he despised it. He despised it in that he considered this bowl of stew more valuable. Am I making sense? And I want to say in the same way that we as a second generation Korean church have done the exact same thing with the anointing for prayer that our forefathers had. We have traded the inheritance that has been passed down to us because we are not willing to have a little bit of momentary suffering. Like Esau, we cannot handle not eating for a little bit, just holding on. No, we're like, no, I got to get it now. I got to get that stew now. That's us every morning as we neglect the place of prayer and as we say, I'd rather sleep in. This is a prophetic word for us, church, okay? This is something that God has gripped my heart with. We do not have their value for prayer, and we have treated the inheritance that is offered to us with contempt. And I say this as a rebuke on all of us, but I want us to have hope because God, I believe, right now in this season is turning the hearts of this generation towards prayer again. I see a window of opportunity where we can take hold of that which is being offered. But I want to say straight up, it is not easy. It is not easy. It is difficult, but it's worth it. But it's worth it. Have you found Matthew chapter 26? To set up a little bit of context for this story, this is Jesus with his disciples. And Jesus knows what's about to happen. It's the very end of the story. He just finished having the Passover meal with his disciples, the Last Supper. And at the very end of the Last Supper... It says this, this is in verse 31. It says, then Jesus told them, this very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. And Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. 
But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Let's pause right there. What's happening here? Jesus is warning them. There is a crisis that is coming, and you are not prepared for it. And Peter is like, yes, I am. Yes, I am, Jesus. I'm ready to die. Peter's got big words. He thinks he's the man. He's ready to handle what's to come. He's feeling confident. But such is the way of spiritual pride. Jesus is warning them. He is telling them, I know what's coming, and I know that you're not prepared. But Peter, filled with spiritual pride, is diminishing the warning that Jesus is trying to give him. He doesn't understand how serious the warning is. And I want to say, this is the nature of spiritual pride. It does not have ears to hear God's warnings. It can't hear them. No sense of alarm. What's the purpose of a warning? It's to fill your heart with a sense of urgency and alarm. Oh, shoot. Something bad might happen here unless I do something, unless I change something. Unless something shifts, something bad is going to happen. That's the purpose of a warning. My son, do not step out into the street when the light is green and cars are going by. That's a good warning. You should tell your kids that one, right? Why? Because if they ignore it, splat, they're done. So I warn my kids like crazy, right? I tell them, I get mad at them. When they, when they don't heed this warning. Sometimes it happens. Sometimes Eden or Judah will just run across the street or just run across, across a parking thing where, where there's cars going, and that's when you see me mad. I don't, I'm not messing around. I'm like, get your butt back here right now. And what happens? They get disciplined. Why? Because it is unacceptable for them not to heed that warning. Because I know what happens if they don't have the fear of oncoming cars in their lives right? Splat! Am I making sense? Pride in the same way, it causes us to ignore God's warnings. See, understand, for Peter, it's been good for so long. For three years, he has been living the life. He's been living the life. They're hungry. Jesus is like, bam, multiply some food. They got some enemies coming and attacking them. Jesus is like, bam, Melt through the crowd ninja style. All right? They feel really in control. Not only have they seen Jesus do this, they have done it themselves. They have healed the sick. They have casted out demons. They've beheld the glory of Jesus in some sense. They've seen who he really is on the Mount of Transfiguration. They have a sense, oh my goodness, life is good and it's about to get glorious because they know what's happening next. They were just there a week ago when they finally came into the city of Jerusalem and they came in riding on the donkey, which if you know a little bit about messianic prophecy, that's it. That's the sign. You come in on a donkey, you're saying, I'm the Messiah and I'm here to take over. And they got the messianic welcome. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So they knew what was about to go down. Jesus was about to get made king. And they were arguing about which of them was going to be like his right-hand dude. And they're like, yeah, we know trouble might come, Jesus. But we're ready for it. Peter's got his sword, if you know the story. He's ready to cut off somebody's head right about now. He ain't going to fall away. Ain't nothing going to happen to him. 
And I want to say in the same way, church, we are in the same place. Things have been good for so long that we can't imagine that they would not be good indefinitely. We can't imagine what it was like in our grandparents' generation when they were conquered by foreign nations, when they were beaten and killed and many of them raped. We can't imagine what happened in our grandparents' generation. It seems so far, so distant from us. We can't imagine that type of thing happening now. But I tell you, God is warning us today that sexual immorality in America will bring judgment. Arrogance towards God has led to sexual freedom, which has resulted in millions of unwanted babies, including 40 million aborted just last year. Brothers and sisters, you must understand, 40 million murders of innocent babies is not something God can ignore forever. There will be a day of reckoning. And that's what we've been talking about here. We've been praying for the end of abortion because we understand, theoretically, it's important. But I want to say this. We don't understand how important. Our nation has come this way before. Some generations ago, God started to warn the nation about a great sin called slavery. And brave Christians started to arise and speak out against it forcefully. And in his mercy, God poured out his spirit and sent a move of the spirit called the Second Great Awakening. The Second Great Awakening led to many people, their eyes being opened to the reality of who God was. And more than that, it ignited a fire on the abolitionist movement. The abolitionist movement became very successful. It started to take ground against the stronghold of slavery, so much so that they managed to finally elect a president that they were confident would put an end to it. They elected Abraham Lincoln, and the southern states knew what was going to happen. They saw the writing on the wall, and what did, they do? what did they do? They decided to rebel, to secede from the Union, and America entered into judgment. You need to understand the Civil War was a judgment from God for the sin of slavery. One out of 50 Americans was killed, 2% of the nation. But I tell you, it was a much more lenient judgment than would have happened if they hadn't won the political battle. If they hadn't won the political battle, the nation very well could have been split in two. And there could have been many more killed. You need to understand, this is the reality of what is happening. In the same way, we have gotten prophetic word after prophetic word that God is planning to pour out his spirit again on America. That there will be a third great awakening. But it's not just so we can have a good time. It is for a purpose. And that purpose is to put an end to the sexual immorality that has run rampant in America and across the world. That has caused billions of children to be born into situations in which their parents really did not want them. This is the situation that we have all across the world today. We have children growing up unwanted because their parents did not respect God's commands, did not understand why God gave us such strict sexual commands. It's not to stop our fun. It's because God sees children. And the same way he has promised that there will be judgment upon the world for what is happening right now. Billions of babies in these past 30, 40 years, billions of babies have been killed because of abortion. 
That is not something God can ignore. I believe there is a great war coming. I think it's going to be far worse than World War I and World War II. I do not know the time. I'm not Nostradamus. But I say, I feel it in my spirit, it is coming. The church should be full of urgency, but for the most part, it is spiritually sleeping. It does not understand the consequences of success and failure in this battle. Verse 36. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. That phrase, keep watch, it must be burned into our souls. What does that mean? He means pray with me. When Jesus says keep watch, he means pray with me. But a lot of people don't understand what does prayer have to do with keeping watch. Keeping watch is a military term. It's a term that means stand guard. Be at your post. Stand guard. This is the command of the Lord. Keep watch in this hour. And you have to understand why the scriptures draw this connection between keeping watch and prioritizing prayer. It's because of this. When we prioritize prayer, we receive insight into the spiritual reality around us. When our spiritual eyes are open, we're able to effectively serve as the watchmen that we have been called to be. When prayer is not prioritized, what happens is we become carnally minded. We're like, what the heck is God? I don't know what God's doing. You know, we have no sense of urgency. We know about God, but the things that we know about God don't touch our hearts with passion. When our spiritual eyes are open, we're filled with vision and passion and urgency. And we're able to effectively warn the people that we're guarding, that we're responsible for. When Jesus says, disciple the nations, he's not just saying, try and go and evangelize every once in a while. Please do that too. But no, it's about taking guard over the nation. Take care of the nation. Take responsibility for the nation. Baptize it in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That means call it to die to itself. Teach it to observe all of my commandments. This is the commission that Jesus gave us. And this is our calling as the church. What does it mean to be a city on a hill? To be the light in the darkness? To be the salt for the land? It means that we are the force that preserves the nation. We are the light that helps the nation see what is right and what is wrong. Martin Luther King Jr. said the church is the moral compass. It's the conscience of the nation. It reminds the nation what's right or wrong. This is our job, church. When our eyes are open, we can warn the nation of what is coming. But when our spiritual eyes are closed, when we're spiritually sleeping, when we have no urgency, when we have no passion, we're like watchmen to sleep at our posts. And danger approaches. 
and were completely unaware. And Jesus said, what happens if the salt loses its saltiness? Then it's no longer fit for anything but to be trampled underneath. That trampling is judgment language, to share in the judgment that comes upon the nation. Verse 39. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Understand Jesus' heart. He loves his disciples. He loves them. He understands them. He knows why they're sleeping through the most important hour of history. They don't understand. They're still so spiritually immature. They don't realize what's about to happen, even though Jesus has been trying to tell them for weeks. He's been telling them, the Son of Man must be handed over to the chief priests and the elders, and they'll put him to death, and three days later he'll rise from the dead. And they look at him and they go, is this one of those weird stories you're telling in Jesus? (laughs) Is this one of those, you know, like... I think a lot of times the disciples were so confused at what Jesus was saying. Because here he's actually telling them like plainly what's happening. And I bet they're just looking at him like, they don't get it. And Jesus knows this about them. That's why he warned them. This very day, right, you're all going to fall away on account of me. They're like, no, come on, Jesus. Come on. Come on. Jesus is like, I know you better than you know yourself. Hear me. In the same way God knows us. He loves us, church. He loves us. We are his little flock. Okay, We are his little flock, but he's warning us that trouble is coming. The trouble is coming. And he says, will you keep watch with me? And he understands. The disciples, they couldn't. They didn't have the vision. They didn't have the understanding. They didn't sense the urgency of the hour. And when you don't have the vision or the understanding, and God's telling you, keep watch. You're like, okay, all right, keep the watch. Brothers and sisters, this is the state of the church. The spirit of the church is willing. It wants to follow Jesus. It wants to obey. It wants to do what's right. But the neglect of prayer has left the church largely blind and controlled by carnal desires. The church right now feels very little urgency, even as the nation slides further and further into depravity, as the nation slides further and further into rebellion against God. We don't remember that it was national devotion, it was national righteousness that got us all of our blessings. We've bought into the lie that it was by our own strength and our own right hand because we were so smart or because we were such, I don't know, great puppet masters or whatever it might be. But no, a nation is exalted by its righteousness is what Scripture says. No, it was the righteousness of America, the trust that we put in God. We put in all of our founding documents. We put in every state constitution. We put it in our Declaration of Independence. We printed it on our money. 
It was the reliance on God that gave us our national blessing. I tell this all the time. In, in the greatest judgment that came upon the earth, America came out of it more blessed than before. Right? The first and second world wars brought us out of our, of our great depression. It destroyed the industry and the infrastructure of all of our enemies. Even we won the war. Don't think that it was because American military was so amazing we won World War II. No, quite the opposite. It was because our enemies destroyed each other like crazy. And because God blessed us, gave us technology like the atomic bomb. It was our industrial power, the riches that won us World War II. And I say this because it's such a clear sign. When I look at the history of America, I'm like, God blessed us so much. And here we stand in all that blessing. And it's made us so arrogant. It's made us so proud. When we look back at the morality of our forefathers and we treat it with contempt as a nation. And the disciples are sleeping again. And rather than wake them up, Jesus goes away again. Verse 42, he went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed a third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered in the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Brothers and sisters, this is where we are right now. This is where we are right now. The church is sleeping through its most desperate hour as the nation turns against God, is in brazen sin and rebellion against God, and we think, that God will just ignore such things? I tell you, the only reason we do is because we have so much bad theology floating around the church now. This is, that's not how God works anymore. I lovingly condemn that type of theology. No, God works exactly the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. He superintends the affairs of nations. He raises up the righteous, and he humbles the proud. God doesn't send judgment because he's a wicked father looking for someone to punish. That's not his heart. He longs that we would be disciplined by judgment. That we'd be woken up out of our slumber. That we'd be woken up out of our rebellion, the arrogance of our nation. All the things that he's given to us, we've turned it against him now. It was his idea that we should start these things called universities. To train up missionaries to teach people about the ways of God. Many of these things are God's ideas and now they've been completely transformed. Now they're used to preach secular humanism. And to discourage trusting in God. Our universities have departed from wisdom. Scripture says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You could be smart about a lot of things, but if you don't fear God, Scripture says you are a fool. And I say in the same way, church, this is the hour of urgency. Now hear me, because there's two ways we can receive this message. One is we can go, oh my gosh, I'm such a failure, right? I am the worst, right? And I want to say, don't fall into that trap. Do not fall into that trap. It is impossible to go from level one faith to level ten faith in a second. 
That is not possible for anyone, okay? It's not possible to go from super immature to crazy mature overnight. No, that's not possible. But it is possible to take a step in the direction, okay? It is possible to take a step in the right direction. None of us can go, God, from here on out, I'm going to pray 10 hours a day. I'm going to fast, right, 40 days, right, every other month, like Lou Engel, right? We can't do that in our own strength. But what we can do is say, God, oh, that you'd pour out your grace. My spirit is willing, but my flesh is weak. And I know that about his church because many of you guys came up to the altar some weeks ago and you committed yourselves to morning prayer. Say, I'm going to stand fast. I am going to commit myself to morning prayer. But by the last week, the commitments had run dry. The vision was gone. And I say, I forgive you. But let's renew our commitment before God. Let's ask him for grace. That he would put it deep in our spirit. This is the way it works, church. You must understand this dynamic. Prayer is the engine of spiritual desire. Prayer is the engine of vision. Prayer is the source of passion. It all comes in the place of prayer. It is the thing that you cannot dismiss. You cannot minimize it. It must come first. Everyone who would follow after Jesus must have a devotion to pray. Scripture says pray at all times. Church, we must have this devotion. All the other devotions are good. They're not bad. Hear me. Okay. But it must be built on prayer because prayer is relationship with the Father. It's speaking to him. It's asking him. You can't even understand scripture unless you would ask God that he would pour out understanding on you. You can't help the poor unless you would ask God for his heart and his supernatural grace to do something that actually brings change in their hearts. We can do nothing in our own strength. We must have his grace on our lives. And he says that he opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. This is why prayer is the foundation. And I say this. We must take a step towards this great inheritance. We're asking that this semester especially, the theme the spiritual theme for this semester is inheritance. I'm asking that God would give us the inheritance of our forefathers. And I, I say this all the time, but look, morning prayer is wonderful. I think it is a wonderful devotion, but I want to take it farther than that. Oh, my dream is that God would give us the grace for a 24-7 house of prayer. That God would give us the grace that we'd be able to not just visit the presence of God, but to abide, to dwell in the presence of God. Look, I understand if, if one-hour prayer meetings are really hard for you, I totally get it. Dreaming of being a house of prayer, that's not, that sounds more like hell than heaven. <laughs> right? I get it, right? But I want to tell you, oh, that you would have a vision to love the presence of the Lord. Right? This is what David said, one thing I ask of the Lord, that also shall I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon his beauty. I'm not saying that we should have a vision to be so disciplined that we spend time with God even though we hate every second of it. I'm saying that we should have a vision to love his presence so much that we never want to be out of it. 
That's, that's the heart of this. John Piper says this. He puts it this way. God is most glorified when we're most satisfied in him. It's the same heart. It's the same heart. And we must have this church. And this is the spirit in which I'm asking that we come together and contend for a real anointing, for a real grace for the place of prayer. If you've never had that vision, if you've never seen yourself as somebody that could spend hours in the presence of God, I want to ask that you surrender that to Jesus, that you ask him to change your heart, right, so that you can hear him, you can hear his voice, that you can feel his love in the place of his presence. Look, the thing that drives many of us out of it a lot of times, it's our carnalness, it's our flesh, our fleshly desires drive us out of the presence. You feel so useless. You feel like so, I feel like I'm being unproductive. I need to do something that's productive. I need to spend my time in a way that matters. That's, the, that's our flesh speaking. That's not our spirit. Our spirit loves the presence of the Lord. It's our flesh that drives us away. You know how you kill the flesh? You make it sit in the spirit for a while. That's why it's freaking out. It's like demons. You stick them in the presence of God, they start freaking out. They want to get out of there. I say it the same way. It's like, it's like the hump, right? If you want to run a marathon, the answer is not, all right, I'm just going to go out and do it. You're going to hate that run, man. No, you got to train yourself. I remember I used to be on swim team. Oh, do you guys not know this? I was on swim team for like 10 years. Damn. I would destroy you fools in backstroke <laughs> 20 years ago. <laughs> um, but I remember feeling when I was on the swim team, I felt like I could swim forever. As long as I don't have to go at like my fastest, you know what I mean? If I'm just at a leisurely pace, I felt like I could just swim forever. It's not even hard. It's easy, right? It's the same way for some of you guys who are runners, right? If you build up the, the proper muscles, the lung capacity and everything, it's like you feel like you could just run forever. No, no problem. The soccer player's like, yeah, man. It's the same thing with prayer. It's the same thing. You got to get over the hump. You have to train your spiritual body to be acclimated to the presence. Until you get there, it's kind of miserable, right? Until you get there, it's like running out of shape when you're out of shape. Yeah, it's like torture kind of, right? But hear me. The vision is not love torture. Some of you hear that whenever I'm talking about prayer. Right? It's like, Pastor Dennis wants me to love torture. No. No. I want you to get over the hump. Get over the hump. Train yourself in righteousness. And when you get over it, I say, look, it works the same way. Look, if I play video games for four hours, I don't want to go to the prayer meeting. My flesh is too strong. But I know if I get into the prayer place of prayer, what starts to happen is, boom, I just break all that fleshly desire off, and I'm in it. Right? I bet half of you all didn't want to come today. Like, dude, I want to come. BTM worship takes forever. They're like singing a million songs. Right? By the way, why do we worship for so long? Because it takes some of y'all that entire time to get the flesh out of you. Right? Okay. 
But church, oh, that we would love his presence. This is, hear me, this is where God is bringing, not just us. This is another prophetic word that I'm giving. In this next generation, God is going to take those who have devoted themselves to prayer, and he's going to pour out his spirit on them. But those who have refused to accept this priority, he is going to pass by in this next move. Okay? I sense this urgency so strongly. This is why everything that's going to be greatly blessed in this next season is going to have serious prayer DNA. Okay? I want to be part of what God's doing. Okay? Worship team, come on up. All right, let's stand right now. Starting next week, we're going to be asking for commitments. And what I mean by that is this. God has really laid it on my heart to present a buffet of prayer meetings. Okay? I've been really encouraged um, by Pastor Will. Some of you guys know him. But God's been putting a lot of the same spirit within him. And we're going to be um, having an, an unofficial partnership. Not an official partnership. Unofficial partnership. Um, but God has laid it on his heart to do a house of prayer. I love that guy, man. When I first met him, he was like, what is all this house of prayer stuff? Now the Lord has convicted him to do a house of prayer. I love, I love the way the spirit works, right? But it's because the foundation has to be right. And I feel like it's not just for TMP. It's not just for him. I feel like this is something that God is doing in this region. He is calling the next generation of Korean-American leaders in the church, right, to devote themselves to a foundation, a solid foundation of the presence. It's not just them. It's happening all over the earth right now. God is putting this in the spirits of hundreds of prayer leaders, right? All over America, all over the entire world, houses of prayer are popping up everywhere. Look, I don't care if you call it a house of prayer. I don't care if you do devotional sets and contending sets and harp and bowl. I don't care. I just care that you pray. Any organization that calls you to prayer, I like them. And I want to ask that we get the same devotion, that we posture our hearts and say, Lord, wake me up. Wake up my spirit. Don't let me be spiritually sleeping through the most important hour of my nation's need. Don't let me be sleeping in the time where I could have made a difference, where I could have been a watchman on the wall. Who knows what might happen? Who knows what might happen? If the Spirit is poured out on America and the church that is ready for it takes hold of it, who knows? It's hard to see the nation being turned back to God. It is. But I know that all things are possible for them that believe. With men, these things are impossible. But with God, all things are possible. It's happened twice already. We've already seen two great awakenings. We've seen God shift entire nations. China has more Christians in it now than America does. 10% of the nation is Christian. This is happening all over the world just as it was prophesied that it would, that this mountain 
would grow and fill the whole earth. This was the promise, and we're part of it. I want to be a part of God's story in this generation. And I recognize that I need a greater anointing for the place of prayer. I need a greater devotion for it. I need to take hold and seize the inheritance of my spiritual forefathers who woke up at 4.30 a.m. every single day to give the first fruits of their day to the Lord. I want to ask right now, could we come before God and just start to ask Him for this same grace? Just say, Lord, shift our hearts, God. Make us love the place of your presence, Lord. We don't want to do it out of just obligation. We want to do it out of love, God. We want to love the place of prayer, the place of worship. We want to love your word and your scriptures, oh God. Lord, we want to love the things of you, Lord.